You're listening to the Companion Gundog Podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Geyer, and uh, today I'm flying solo. At the request of Emily, I'm going to be giving a brief rundown of the uh, the snake aversion clinics we offer here at the, at the uh, kennels. And uh, just a basic description for those that are either interested in bringing a dog, maybe have brung a dog, uh, and have asked some questions in the past, or uh, just have a basic general um, kind of curiosity about what snake aversion is, how it works, uh, if it works, um, and and so on and so forth. So uh, again, we're going to keep it brief. I'm going to move quickly, uh, and hopefully I will cover everything in a concise fashion, um, but I am just going to kind of go down the list here um, of the talking points I've been given. And so first is just an overview of the process. Uh, basically, what we're doing is uh, is exposing dogs to, um, to snakes, and we're going to hopefully draw an association between snakes and pain. And, uh, and the idea and the hope is that in the future, if dogs are exposed to snakes in an uncontrolled environment, they will choose to avoid them because they recognize them as a danger, as something that has caused pain to them in the past. Um, you know, it does take a bit of, uh, uh, maybe a technical approach to the, this first exposure in a controlled environment to, to make that, uh, lesson stick, if you will. So, um, so kind of just a, a general overview of what we do. I have, uh, often two, um, venomous snakes that, uh, are handled and cared for by a local herpetologist. That's Kernersville Reptile Zoo. Uh, I've chosen to not handle my own snakes for, for, uh, for various reasons. One, uh, it's not my area of expertise. I don't really have an interest uh, they do give me the heebie-jeebies to some degree. And so I'd rather just let somebody else deal with that. Um, I'm not super afraid of snakes, but I don't, uh, uh, I don't go around messing with, uh, especially snakes that I know are venomous. Um, uh, I, I tend to try to avoid them. So again, there are folks out there that have an interest in that and have the expertise in that field to, to handle them appropriate, appropriately and safely. Um, number two, you know, I, I don't wish any harm to come to snakes. I, uh, they're, uh, I think they play an important role in, uh, in the ecosystem. And so I'm not out to get them or anything. I just want my dogs and, and hopefully those of my clients and those that bring them out for these clinics to, uh, to just stay away from each other. And hopefully, um, you know, uh, we can all have kind of a live and let live relationship with those animals. Um, uh, so we do have our venomous snakes that are handled by the pros. They bring them out in cages. And so they are in cages with a kind of a double pane hardware cloth, uh, uh, exterior. Um, so it's going to allow for ventilation. It's going to allow for airflow. Um, and then also the dog, it's the, the screen is wide enough that the dogs get a good kind of a, a visual of the snakes. So they get to see them. And in the case of the rattlesnake, they're going to hear them. So what I, what I'm really looking for is when the dog does make contact with the snake in that controlled and safe environment that they get full sensory perception, uh, meaning they're going to, um, hopefully smell them, uh, since that's the dog's, um, kind of primary, 
sensory modality. Uh, so hopefully if that triggers curiosity, it often does. The dogs go up for, you know, a closer look, if you will, and they do get a visual. Um, and of course, in the case of the rattlesnake, hear them. And, and if they, especially if the dog uh, attempts to make contact in any way with the snake, uh, just in terms of out of curiosity, we deliver a big aversive stimulation via e-collar. Um, this would be, uh, what some may consider a nick, probably a little bit of a prolonged nick, if you will, or a very, uh, short duration, continuous, um, delivery of that stimulation, uh, at, at a very high level. Um, and, and the idea is, Hey, you do it one time and, um, and you learn your lesson and you get out of there and we don't do it again. Um, I'll kind of circle back uh, to that a little bit more and and talk about why we do it that way and why we think it's effective, but just kind of getting a little deeper into the process. Um, I do this on a stakeout. uh, So the dog is tied off to a, uh, basically something that uh, they can pivot around. So the stakeout will be in the middle. I'll have one cage on one side, one cage on the other. And uh, the cages will be upwind of the dog. The dog will be downwind of the cages. And I will work in a semicircle uh, with the pivot being the center point, uh, the dog being between the, the pivot and myself. I'll have control with a leash. Uh, the, do- their, the dog will be also tethered to that pivot. And I will bring them downwind of the snake. And I hopefully will allow the dog to, uh, to make contact on their own once they've kind of perceived the snake there as a novel item, as something to be checked out and curious, if you will. Some do, uh, not always. Some are uh, immediately trepidatious in the presence of a snake. They don't trust it. They don't like it. And they try to stay away from it. In that case, we may come in there and incentivize them to make contact. I'm not going to, I'm not going to force them to, um, but I'll, I'll do things that I think may, uh, instill a little confidence in the dog to go check it out. And I, I do want them of their own free will to attempt to make that contact so that whatever correction I do deliver, um, is I guess patently fair is not the word, um, but it, 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 in it's kind of the catalyst is the, the action made by the dog, if that makes sense. Uh, and so the dog has the opportunity to, to draw that association in some cases with that kind of short lived continuous pressure, uh, the dog has the opportunity to kind of fight out of that situation and relieve themselves of that pressure, but we're not going to make that a, a major part of the criteria. Um, once the dog has has been through that process on at least one of those snakes, we're going to turn around <clears throat> and attempt to approach the other snake. And if uh, if the dog, and oftentimes some dogs will go, well, I didn't learn my lesson over there. Let's try it over here. Um, and and they go through the same process. Most times the dog are, dog's going to get wind of the next snake as we get downwind. Uh, draw that visual, recognize the context and say, uh, no, sir, no, thank you. I think I'll just hit the brakes and stay right here. Or I will, um, in a bit of a panic, try to go in the opposite direction. Uh, in which case I will then go in, remove the dog from, uh, the leash that's tethering them to the pivot and let them move uh, a, a bit more of their own free will without as quite as much control physically. And I will give them the opportunity uh, then to approach the snakes again. Most are not going to. Some will recognize or see uh, being relieved of uh, of that kind of control from the from the the stake. 
Um, uh, for whatever reason, it, it just instills confidence and they go back and decide to check it out again, in which case we, we deliver, uh, again, another stimulation. Um, the great majority are going to get it once in that, in this whole process, they're going to get up and we're usually going to start with a copperhead, uh, as that seems to be our major threat in this area. And most people are not traveling to areas that are, uh, where rattlesnakes are, um, endemic, but we will use a, uh, a rattlesnake as well. And if I do have folks that are traveling out West, I'll give them the option, which one they want the exposure to happen with first. Uh, and either way, um, we'll move from one to the next. Uh, so usually by this point, by the time they've received their one stem, um, they're no longer interested in going near either one of the boxes. We then turn and we begin to walk away from that setup. And, uh, in route, we will encounter a loose, non-venomous snake. We started doing this with like black racers or, or rat snakes or just black snakes, whatever you call them, wherever you're from. I just recognize them as black snakes. Um, and uh, they'll be out in the open and exposed and the dog will be brought in again from downwind. You will almost always, or I almost always, uh, fail to see a um, odor recognition of that non-venomous snake, uh, that you might expect after they've been, uh, uh, exposed to these venomous snakes. You might think that there might be something similar between, uh, a venomous type of snake and a non-venomous type of snake. Uh, I've got theories on why this is, but, uh, I, I would, I wouldn't put it out there publicly in terms of speculation as why they don't seem to be either worried about the non-venomous snakes or don't seem to smell them at all. Um, after the exposure to the venomous snakes, which I certainly believe they do smell. Um, so we'll give them the opportunity to make contact with that non-venomous snake if they do. If they get curious and saunter up to that uh, to that non-venomous snake and make contact with it, we deliver another stimulation. Um, then we walk back out and we kind of walk through... Uh, through the setup again, giving them that opportunity. We usually will move the non-venomous snake to a different area and, uh, and give them that exposure again. We did move from the native black snakes to, uh, to kind of more, um, domesticated, I guess it might, might not be the word, but to, to like pythons or boa constrictors, whatever the, the, the herpetology guys bring out, um, simply because they tend to be a little more docile, a little less inclined to just run away and get lost in the woods, which has happened on a couple of occasions with the, with the native non-venomous snakes. Um, it's, if it's nice and warm, they will kind of stretch out and move around. Uh, oftentimes they'll ball up and we try to, to kind of make them, mimic a, a more of a, a nope rope, if you will, as opposed to just a ball. I want that on that non-venomous snake. I think the visual contact tends to be really important, especially since the dogs don't seem to be able to smell them quite as well. Um, but either way, the, the, the process remains the same and, and we move through. Uh, and for the most part, what's going to happen, I would say uh, the majority of the time, uh, the very first exposure to the venomous snake uh, is enough. And they try to avoid every snake. Oftentimes, um, they will avert the second venomous snake. And once they are exposed to the non-venomous snake, you know, in, in just kind of a leash walking scenario, uh, they'll either get wind of it or see it and not recognize it as 
uh, as what they've seen previously. And I think uh, some of this is due to the fact that their primary sensory perception organ is their nose uh, and not their eyes. And it just doesn't seem to be as acute um, uh, or intense uh, uh, kind of sensory deal. You know, so you can tell, man, when they get downwind of a non-venomous or a venomous snake and they've been through this process, a pit viper of pretty much any sort, we've used several of them. Uh, and this holds up from, for the most part, year over year with the same dog um, that's been through it once. Once they smell that that snake, they, they recognize it. So whether or not they avert, they smell it and they make some sort of action. Uh, oftentimes again, they may smell the, the non-venomous snake and they may get, you know, either slightly curious, um, but usually it doesn't elicit the same sort of intense response. And I, I, again, you know, I, I, I've got theories on why that may be, but I'm not a uh, professional biologist and, um, it would probably be smarter of me to just stay away from trying to speculate at that. Uh, but we move out and usually that's kind of the end of it. The whole process in and of itself is almost always, well under 10 minutes uh, from the time I receive the dog from the client, uh, hook the dog to the pivot, walk him to the first snake, deliver the aversive, uh, and then whatever happens after that, um, we're normally out, I would say, in probably somewhere between five and seven minutes. So uh, that's the general um, overview of the process. Uh, it, I've been asked to kind of explain what it means by singular learning event. I often refer to this as a singular learning event. That's the hope anyway, is that we need to deliver a large enough, uh, aversive stimulus, um, that this is a one and done type of scenario. Uh, you know, we often will talk about, uh, putting your hand on, on a hot eye of an oven or a stove, pardon me. Um, and, and you do that once and you, you normally will not make that same mistake again into the future. This is the same kind of deal. Uh, again, I want the dog to become curious and I want the dog to initiate the contact. Uh, and, and for that reason, that's the action that's being punished. That's a behavior, you know, and if, uh, and, and so I think that's much more clear if the dog does that purposefully, um, that they now have, uh, can have a sense of purpose and avoiding the snake into the future, if that makes sense. So that's why, uh, we do it from that, uh, kind of in, in that way. Um, so the dog's doing it, seeing it a certain, you know, seeing it as a singular learning event from their perspective. I did this once it hurt real bad. I never want to do it again. Um, so hopefully that makes sense. Uh, uh, it's been asked what snakes are used for, for now we are using a copperhead, which is native to our area. We have a lot of dog bites, um, uh, from copperheads in the area, the copperheads, uh, the, you know, they're venomous. It hurts. Um, I, you rarely hear of a fatality. The only fatality I've seen personally or been involved with personally from a copperhead bite, uh, happened in a kennel. And, uh, the dog is asphyxiated, um, because the collar, uh, ended up occluding its airway, um, when it's, when it swelled up, you know, so oftentimes, in, especially in really vascular areas like the face and neck, um, the swelling can be pretty intense and, and the dogs will puff up really big. And so this dog just happened to have a, a collar on in the kennel, got bit, sw swole up, 
really big and bad and uh and its airway was occluded and it asphyxiated so that was very sad um and so that can happen but normally what you're going to see is some localized swelling um quite a bit of pain it it looks as if it's very painful to the dogs uh, uh, but for the most part, you might get a little necrosis in the area and the, and the vet may need to remove a little bit of flesh and, or tissue. Um, so you will see on occasion, a dog, especially gets struck around the eye, may lose an eye, may lose a piece of its ear, may lose a piece of its toe. Um, you know, piece of its tongue I've seen. Uh, but for the most part, they're not going to lose that much flesh. Uh, that's, those are pretty rare. Usually it's, uh, you know, you just uh, watch it and wait and see, maybe treat for a little bit of pain relief. But other than that, uh, these these things tend to, you know, if we're lucky, kind of um, be, you know, they're painful events, but uh, not major veteran, veterinary emergencies with the copperheads. Now, that being said, we do use Western Diamondbacks and we see, a, we hear of a lot more fatalities with those. So those tend to be um, and I, again, I'm not a biologist. I'm not a herpetologist. I, I, I won't sit here and uh, talk about the difference in terms of envenomation or why one venom is more powerful than the other. But we do know that the, the rattlesnakes uh, pose much more of a threat in terms of uh, uh, um, fatalities with dogs or, or, you know, more major medical emergency, veterinary medical emergency type situations. So for that reason, we want them to be exposed to them as well. And for those people that are going to be traveling to areas that have higher densities of rattlesnakes, um, you know, we, uh, uh, we will often expose them to those first for that reason. We do have a population of rattlesnakes local to us. Most of them are a bit south and west of us. They tend to be in, in the mountains uh, like the Uari Range or even down into the sand hills more. Down at the coast, they tend to have more. Um, those are timber rattlers. Uh, I don't think, you know, and this is based on hearsay. Uh, I don't have any real evidence to back this up, but I don't think they tend to be quite as aggressive as the Western diamondbacks or maybe some other Western species of rattlesnake. Um, but, uh, but they're still a danger. So if people are in those areas, we, we will often use the rattlesnake first and we hope, you know, and the one we use, we've been using for the last few clinics, uh, is a pretty aggressive rattler. So, uh, we don't have to get very close to him and he really fires up and you can hear him from a good ways off. Uh, and so I think that's important. Um, and again, you know, we talked about why we use the, uh, the boa or the python, um, as our proofing snake. We still want you to be exposed to snakes that are non-venomous and stay away from them. Um, most dogs do this without too much prompting every once in a while. Um, you know, and probably more than every once in a while, probably a good portion, maybe 33% will need us to deliver an aversive on them just because they seem to have a completely different scent signature and uh, don't trigger that same um, uh, response from the dog, that that big aversion, uh, staying away and being scared of them. Um, another talking point is how effective is it? And, and this is an important question um, because, uh, you know, to be completely frank, it's not 100% effective. Um, I do, on occasion, get reports of dogs that have either aggressed snakes and their their client uh, or the client or their owners have witnessed that. Um, and some, on rare occasion, dogs that have been bit by snakes after going through the clinic. Uh, it happens. Some of it is going to uh, depend on the nature of the dog. You know, sometimes we have dogs that are just extremely highly prey-driven uh, um or, you know, driven to, you know, some dogs can have, you know, I won't get into too much of a discussion on prey drive, but some dogs can maybe not be real excited about chasing a ball, but they see something with a pulse that's small. 
uh, they cannot help themselves. And uh, on rare occasions, these dogs will come through and uh, when they see something that that triggers that kind of predatory aggression from them, they're going to, they're going to act on it. Um, you know, we will put these dogs back through a clinic. I've got one coming, uh, to my next clinic, um, that, uh, his, his owner, uh, kind of witnessed, uh, the dog, uh, aggressing a, an Eastern water snake. And so we're going to give it another chance, but I can tell you just knowing the dog pretty well, um, you know, hopefully this works. Um, but, uh, I, I wouldn't bet the house on it. You know, um, if she just, she, she has a, not only, uh, uh, strong predatory aggression, um, but also kind of a hatred of snakes in general. She tend just tends to be something that really, really, uh, she tends to obsess on. So that can happen. Um, an, another thing, another theory I have on this is maybe dogs that, that would avert nor- normally, uh, some dogs will be left unattended in the yard. Uh, if you got a fenced yard or something at the house for long periods of time, maybe over a long period of time. And what I mean by that is they may go out and spend, you know, a day or half a day or even a couple of hours out in the yard, most days of their life. Um, and, and because that's happening every day over a long period of time, I think that there's a chance that they could be exposed to a snake that they may, uh, they may, be afraid of, um, at first. And then over time with exposure, uh, that fear is kind of deconditioned. Um, and so those dogs may slowly lose that kind of fear of snakes because of this long-term exposure and, uh, slowly, um, get more and more bold around them to the point where they, uh, make contact with them again. Again, that's a theory. Um, I, you know, it's tough to collect data on those sort of things, but I would say the majority of cases where people are recognizing their dogs, interacting with snakes after they've been through this process, that's the context. Um, almost to a dog. Uh, that's what I'm hearing back. That being said, there are exceptions to that rule. Those kind of, uh, predatory, aggressive dogs that just, can't control themselves once prey drive has been triggered. Um, so is it a, is it a hundred percent effective? Nope, it's not. Um, you know, and it's dog dependent, it's context dependent. Uh, I do hear many stories though, as well. Um, you know, about dogs that are seeing snakes and avoiding them at, at on site or on smell or locking up and not wanting to go any further down the trail on a hike or things, that, things of that nature. So it's, it's tough. I, I, you know, um, I should probably keep numbers on this. Uh, but I would say I hear as many stories, if not more about that than the ones that have been left alone in the yard and are beginning to interact with snakes again, or the clients have seen them interacting with snakes again. I also have a theory that I'm probably going to hear back from more people, uh, that are suffering some sort of failure, uh, of this process than those that aren't. Um, and some people may not notice that they're having a successful aversion of a snake, you know, it just meant the dog may smell it and just avoid it. And that's what we hope happens into the future. So it, it would be tough, even if I was collecting that data, uh, to, to be able to, to say that it was, um, you know, how accurate it was, uh, over that, whatever period of time over that many dogs. So, um, I've seen it work. I've seen dogs avert in the wild. Um, 
I have not personally witnessed any of my own dogs engage snakes after they've been through the process, but of course I don't put them in situations where they would be exposed over a long period of time for the most part. So, um, so is it effective? Yeah. I, I don't even want to put a number on it. Um, but I do, I would, I, I believe in my heart of hearts that it's more effective than it is ineffective. Um, and it's just a, uh, you know, it's, it's one more thing we can do to do our best to prevent something bad happening, uh, in an uncontrolled environment. And, and so, and I believe it's worth it or I wouldn't be doing it. Um, uh, so kind of the day of another talking point is what is it like when you kind of show up? Uh, Emily handles all the registration. She gives everybody a time slot and she requests that you don't show up too early. Um, and, uh, you know, you just kind of show up on your time. We meet, I, I usually am very happy and, and think it's important to continue to do this to field questions prior. So I'm going to meet you usually at your car. Uh, I may ask you to leash your dog up to, to put a certain collar on your dog, or I may take it a lot of it. If the dogs are like just super nervous to be there in the first place, um, or, or just not, you know, uh, confident in that environment, which is common. I mean, it's, it's very stimulating environment. Then it's just going to be for the sake of efficiency and, and me trying to, to, you know, develop in what little time I have with your dog, a, a decent rapport. It's oftentimes it's easier to just ask you to leash them up. Um, uh, but, but I am going to take your dog from the vehicle. I'm going to ask, you're welcome to watch the process. I ask that nobody take any moving video, um, simply because I, you know, I don't have, I'm not, I'm everything I do. I'm, I'm happy. I wouldn't do it if, if I wasn't willing to be critiqued. Um, but that being said, uh, I, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tough time, uh, in, in the world to, uh, to be exposed, uh, you know, doing anything, you know, no matter how innocuous, but this can, you know, this is not a fun process and it's not something that I think needs to be, um, out there in the world. But again, I'm, I'm happy to defend my position in person with anybody that has a, you know, a criticism of this thing. Um, and because I believe it is, better for the dog than it isn't. I, my dogs all go through it because I care about them, not because I want to inflict pain on them. Um, so we can disagree on, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, maybe the finer points of, of training and, and things of that nature. But at the end of the day, uh, my intent is pure. I'm here for the dogs, uh, in terms of doing this. So, uh, kind of moving on. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to catch up with my notes a bit. I lost them. And I got them back here. Um, so I think for the most part, that's it. I run your dog through the process. I, I ask you not to video, um, you know, still pictures, probably not, not a great idea either. If you want them, talk to me first and then, you know, we may be able to, to set it up so you can do that. Uh, again, just not, not a great time in the history of the world to, to have that going on. Um, if you, if, you know, you're welcome to watch that as I'm proofing the snake or proofing the dog on the non-venomous snake, I do ask people to kind of stay out of the line of sight of their dog. Oftentimes the dog will focus on the handler and just not, and kind of become oblivious to the environment in general. And we want them to, to have the opportunity, uh, to, uh, to recognize the non-venomous snake and to focus on that. And if they're really busy 
trying to get back to their owner. Um, they, they oftentimes will not, uh, you know, stay engaged with me and the snakes, uh, on the course. So, so that's kind of one bit of it, but as soon as we're past that, then right back to you, um, I hand them off to you, answer any questions you may have at that point. Um, hopefully we had a nice, you know, it, some dogs are easier than others. Some dogs are naturally curious. Some dogs are, um, kind of stressy about the entire process in general, or just being in that environment. And that makes it a little tougher. It takes me a little more time, but it usually averages out at the end. So, uh, again, I'm going to hand them back to you and you're going to have, have a wonderful day, hopefully, and go back. And I would say like some people do have concerns like, Hey, once my dogs felt that major aversive, are they going to be traumatized for life? I will say this, like when we talk singular learning event, we want it to be a traumatic experience, you know, and I often will refer to it as a micro trauma. Um, if it's not, you know, I mean, and this is, you know, we're getting into semantics to some degree here. Um, but if it's not traumatic, then it's not going to have the desired effect, right? It needs to. So what we don't want is general trauma. I don't want to traumatize your dog to the point where it can no longer, um, uh, you know, thrive in the world once it leaves here. And I have not, uh, I've not had any issue to this point that would suggest that, uh, uh, that that would be the case, right? Most dogs are going to adjust just fine going home. I do suggest they go right back into the crate. Once they get to you, give them a chance to cool off, get them off the property, and then just go back to having a normal life. And, um, for the most part, that's, that's life, right? We get hurt. We have things happen. Dogs have things happen and we move past it. And, and, um, you know, from a collar perspective, uh, I have not had this process, um, we're not drawing the association between the collar and the pain. We're drawing the association between the snake and the pain. And we do that with a lot of intent. So if your dog is collar conditioned and it's part of its daily life, you're not going to suffer any ill effects, um, uh, with going back to the collar. And if your dog has not been collar conditioned and the collar is completely novel to the dog, uh, then, uh, it's a non-issue to, to begin and end with, right? Because it's, uh, it's a novel item all the way around. Um, you know, and so either if you plan to introduce it later, a, a proper reintroduction, most dogs, as far as I know, are going to get right back to business and to, to the business of life. And so uh, that's just kind of general, you know, behavioral dealings on a day-to-day basis for all of us as organisms. Um, if you encounter a snake afterwards... Uh, with your dog. Well, I mean, so yeah, I mean, you're going to have to kind of witness it. I would not uh, encourage my dog to encounter snakes. If I happen to see a snake and, uh, I've got my dog on a leash or something like that, I'm not going to drag it over to that snake to just put it in that situation because that's, it's uncontrolled. We don't know exactly what could or will happen. Um, so I don't suggest that, but if your dog happens to make contact with a snake, uh, and it avoids it, move on, get out of the situation. If it does not avoid it, get physical control of the situation, get out of there and give me a call and let me know it happened. Either way, please let me know it happened. You know, it, it is important for me to know these things because it, it, it helps me determine how effective it is going into the future, you know, and it, that kind of feedback is, we all need that to know we're either doing good work or we're not. Um, and, and so please, you know, by all means, whatever you do, don't, don't loiter, don't endanger the snake, don't endanger your dog. Um, uh, but hopefully we have a good aversion. The dog either puts on the brakes or gets out of dodge and, you know, doesn't bolt in such a, uh, a fashion you don't see it anymore. I don't think that would be the case. Um, 
uh, but avoids the snake. And if that happens, get him get him out of the area um, and then give me a call. And if the dog does not avoid the snake, uh, regardless, if it just doesn't notice it, if it and that that's very possible. We've talked about the non-venomous snakes. Um, if it doesn't notice it and almost steps on it, keep it away from it. If it does notice it and aggresses it, uh, keep it away from it and let me know. So, but at the end of the day, please let me know um, one way or the other. Yeah, I wouldn't, I, if I, you know, if I do this for the next year and everybody calls me and everybody says, Hey man, my dog saw a snake and it went right over there and got bit on the nose because it was curious or it went right over there and tried to bite the snake and got bit on the nose or it just never recognized it and stepped on the snake. And, and that's the great majority of my feedback. I, there's zero reason for me to be doing this, right? I do not want to be, pardon the pun, um, selling snake oil here. You know, I'm doing it because I believe there isn't enough of an effectiveness, uh, to, to merit doing it. And if there's not, I wouldn't be. Um, but so far, uh, the, the anecdotes I do have, um, keep me doing it. So, um, uh, and then of course, you know, I get a lot of people that want to bring their dog back and I encourage it. You know, I want to see it. I think it's great, you know, and, and I often will try to shift the context. I'll take the non-venomous snake or I'll take one of the venomous snakes to a different area and just let the dog get downwind and make contact again. We'll take it into a completely different context and I want to see. So I'm there to look and see, hey, does the dog, number one, recognize it? And if it, number two, if it does recognize it, does it avoid it? Um, if either two of those criteria are not met, we're going to go back through the process again. Uh, I can tell you. I see many, many dogs that do come back that not only recognize it, they avoid it at all cost, And that's what I want to see. And that's one thing that keeps me doing it. I do have concerns about the context. I mean, if you're coming back to my farm and that's where it happened, then there's going to be some spatial recognition. I see, I see those kind of things and I, I see them as problematic. So if I'm doing a clinic somewhere else that's local and you can get there, um, then, then that would be better. Um, but if we got to do it at the farm again, you know, I'm going to do my best to at least manipulate the context in such a way uh, that it doesn't completely resemble the last time they went through it. I'm going to get a chance to just witness it. So, yeah, I encourage folks to do it. I do offer a discount. Um, you know, the normal price on uh, coming for the first time is 70 bucks. If you come back uh, a second time, I'll, I'll do it for 50 uh, and if you do have an engagement issue, if your dog sees a snake and engages that snake, call me, I will get that dog back in, in to the presence of a snake, uh, at all costs. I want to make sure I at least get to see and, and hopefully, uh, dissect, you know, what I believe, um, you know, the motives may be there and do my best to prevent it happening in the future. So, that's it, guys. That's my rundown. Hopefully uh, that provided all the information anyone may have been looking for on the topic. And uh, and if you were considering coming, either informed you uh, in such a way that you are able to make uh, a more educated uh, decision um, moving forward, whether it be bring them or not. So, you know, I, I'm not here to sell this. Uh, I'm, I'm here to provide the service because I believe in it. And, um, and I don't want to... Uh, to mislead people into believing it's a, it's a, uh, the answer to all your problems concerning snakes, because it may not be, but I, I do believe it's effective uh, and I do believe it's worth doing. But at the end of the day, that's got to be your decision to make. So uh, if, I, if you decide not to come out for snake aversion and you do have a bird dog and you're interested in being around, I hope you will choose to come give us a visit uh, and, and know that we've got your dog's best interest at heart at all times, whether it be... Uh, training bird dog stuff or this kind of snake aversion stuff. 
as always, um, you can find me at www.losthighwaykennels.com. Emily is at Horizon Retrievers. Uh, I think both of us are pretty well booked out through the summer. Emily may, I think she may have had a client or two back out. So there may be some space available if you're looking for good companion obedience work with maybe some light gun dog work. Uh, for me, I am still, I think I've got one spot left in a companion program for November. Um, other than that, I will be booking into January for, uh, for dogs that are experienced and that I can assess or that have been with me in the past. And for basic pointing dog work, my next uh, availability won't be until March of 24. Um, but I am always here and available. If you want to come out for lessons, um, I will say in the summertime, bird work is, uh, is almost non-existent. It's especially, especially, uh, on the pointing end, we can do some pigeon work, but it's, you know, it's very limited in what we can accomplish with it. Uh, we'll be back to work in birds in September. Um, and so if that's what you're looking for that, you know, give me a call, happy to get you, you know, have a, ch- have a chat with you about your objectives and, uh, and, and do my best to help you accomplish those. Thanks for listening guys. Again, I hope this was, uh, was a value to you and, um, look forward to, uh, to hearing from you in the future. Have a good day. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.